This is another iRaw podcast. We don't necessarily have to come up with a species catalog to know what species richness or diversity is, biodiversity is. The functional aspects of the ecosystem, which is its sonic signatures, are just as important because sound is a means for how the ecosystem is functioning. Animal communication is part of the, the network that keeps things going. Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. It's season four of The Animal Turn. Yay! And I think uh, when a podcast reaches the fourth season, you know that it's established. So I think it's official. The Animal Turn podcast is legitimately a podcast. By the time this airs, we will be just under 10,000 downloads. So a huge thank you to everyone for your continued support, for listening, and uh, for spreading and sharing the podcast. And a huge, huge, huge thank you to all of you that leave reviews. Uh, Reviews go a long way in terms of helping others find the podcast. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by Animals in Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, which is a fantastic uh, research group in Kingston, Ontario. But for the first time ever, we're also being sponsored by two other sponsors, by the Sonic Arts of Place Laboratory, SAP Lab, as well as the Sonic Arts Studio. So they knew that the season was coming up, was focused on sound, and they were very keen to sponsor the season. So thank you so much to Matt Brigolsky and Laura Cameron for your support with this as well. And as part of their sponsorship, uh, something new is going to happen with this season. Instead of me doing the animal highlights at the end of every episode, I'm going to have a graduate student from SAP Lab who's going to help me with those. Uh, Hannah Hunter, you'll meet her at the end of this episode, is going to be doing all of the highlights and she's wonderful and fantastic and I'm pretty certain you're all going to fall in love with her too. Uh, But I don't want to talk for too long in this introduction because I start off with a fairly long episode, but it is brilliant and it is really exciting. So let me tell you a bit about my guest today. Dr. Brian Pijanowski is a professor and university faculty scholar in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at Purdue University. His work focuses on the use of sound to study nature and how humans perceive their environment through their senses, especially through sound. He's also the director of the Center for Global Soundscapes, which serves as a focal point for comparative global soundscape work that focuses on classifying sounds for use in biodiversity research. And uh, you're going to hear that today we speak a lot about soundscapes as well as soundscape ecology, which is considered to be a relatively new field. Uh, And Brian has done a lot of work in this field, and he kind of gives us a really nice baseline to begin this whole season. What is it when we're talking about sound and what could sound ecology mean? And what on earth is a soundscape? So one of his missions is to record the earth, and he has published over 170 peer-reviewed articles. He's conducted research in over 54 locations around the world and is close to reaching his personal mission of conducting a study in every major terrestrial and aquatic biome in the world. His soundscape archive now exceeds 4 million recordings, and his longest research project started 15 years ago. So he is certainly an expert to be speaking to about sound, and you're going to hear throughout this episode that uh, he introduces a whole bunch of new concepts, new ideas, and new ways, I think, for animal studies scholars to think about animals and the ways in which we understand them. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, hello, Brian. Welcome to the Animal Tone Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. 
I've never really thought about sound in an academic kind of way, in a scholarly way. And I've been spending the past two weeks or so kind of going through some of your work and your websites and what an exciting, exciting field. So before we get into uh, the concept for today, which is uh, soundscapes or, and sound ecology, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like you to perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself and the kind of work you do. Yeah. Um, again, I'm excited to uh, be on the show and talk to you about what I do. There are so many different facets to the work that we're conducting here at Purdue. Uh, it's kind of hard to even included into a show that's like this, but you can imagine that every place on earth has a set of sounds that are very characteristic to it. They're just sounds that define a place. And as humans, uh, we've experienced that. As a matter of fact, we, we do this on a regular basis. We, wherever we go, we listen and the sounds help us to further refine and define that place. And so as we might walk around in a, in a field, in a forest or something like that, uh, we might hear the sounds of birds and crickets and frogs. But as we kind of approach a stream, or we can hear that stream before we see it. And so it's part of, it's part of how we uh, uh, kind of find information or determine the information about place, what's happening, what, what's there with us. Um, we use it in such distinct ways that it's almost kind of scary because we can close our eyes and listen to the sounds around us and we can determine, for example, a door opened up in the room next to us and maybe we can hear footsteps. And And those sounds are ones that we use as what's happening around me. Uh, so... All of these sounds are embedded in our neurological system in really ways that are just fascinating to me. Um, the sounds of my childhood are very distinct, too. Uh, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I used to spend summers at my grandparents' place, and uh, we would go out. My grandfather would take us out or take me out with him to, to go fishing early in the morning. And I would lay in bed and I would hear the coffee maker. And it would, I would hear it before I smelled it. And it's like, okay, it's time to wake up. And he'd be banging around. And, and then we'd go out and grab our fishing poles. And even the sound of those fishing poles, as you kind of grab them, are so distinct. I mean, this is decades ago, right? And, and then we step into the boat. And then you just hear the quiet lapping of the waves against the boat. You know, and then you get your fishing pole out and you throw it out and the reel goes zing and then you hear the bobber just hit the water and it's just very quiet. So those sounds are distinct, but I could go even further and say those sounds are part of who I am. They define who I am, right? The sounds of our childhood, the sounds, the sounds of our parents' voices, the sounds of our relatives. Uh, and so you can, you eventually have all of these catalogs of experiences that are all sonic and eventually they become more than even just who they are. They trigger emotions. They trigger something deep inside us. And so my argument is also that compared to all the other senses, 
Some is probably the most e- deeply emotional trigger that we have. You know, uh, you know, the parallels to music are really easy, right? You can just listen to music and we all kind of have the same emotional response to a sad song, to a song about love, to a song about having fun. They, they all kind of have this universal appeal to us. So, um, so sounds are kind of, uh, really, uh, part of human society. So when I talk about sound to people, I, I talk about the three major dimensions of it. So the one is just its physical presence. Its physical presence is sound just exists everywhere. I mean, you can't find a silent place on earth. It just doesn't exist. And then there's the, the, the psychological part. How, how do we sense it? It's, it's how do we uh, perceive uh, the environment around us through that, that really critical pipeline of sound. And then the last one is, is kind of transitioning into like emotions and even spirituality as I began to talk to people that are not thinking like the Western world does. You know, the Eastern cultures, for example, have a very different perspective of sound. So I study all three of those together, and I'm interested in, in all of those signals. Now, in particular, um, I use the sounds, the presence of sounds, to quantify the amount of biodiversity of a place. And I'm very, I'm, in, I'm extremely interested in that because we have very few tools as scientists that can go out and develop the catalog of sounds of all animals at a place. So you can imagine <clears throat> that if you go to a place like the tropics, I can easily develop a catalog of hundreds, sometimes even thousands of species that exist at a place, I have one instrument that we can record that and do it continuously every day, every week, every month on for years. So I have an incredible uh, uh, ability because of the technology to go out, measure biodiversity at just about every place, terrestrial systems. We have studies in the marine environment, freshwater systems. And, and so sound for us is a measure of who's there, Mm. the sounds, the sounds of nature. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on a distinct purpose. I'm also interested in, in making sure that people are aware that, you know, we're, we're having, we're having a great impact on the planet. And it's one that's not good. Mm-hmm. And when I go to places like Borneo or Africa, I mean, I'm at places that people haven't been maybe ever. And I'm recording these sounds and I'm thinking, we can't lose this. We can't lose this ecosystem. Yeah. How can I tell my story? I can tell my story through the sounds that I play back to the public and use that emotional trigger that I think is really powerful. It's a powerful voice mm. in the way in which I, me as a scientist, I'm trying to communicate um, the impact that we have on, on ecosystems, but also the beauty and awe 
of nature that I have and that we should all have. Yeah, it's it's amazing the 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 work you do, and just having gone through through your website a bit, just the number of recordings in the number of places you and your team have managed to acquire uh, the different sounds and soundscapes, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna get into some of that a, a bit later. But you brought up some of those childhood sounds for you, and was it these kinds of sounds when you were a kid that got you interested in sound and soundscape ecology or and I know that that's a relatively new field but what got you interested as a scientist in sound what was that moment for you when you thought okay sound is where I have to focus my attention well you know uh I, I think um an answer to a question like that is there are just like multiple pathways and roads to get you to the same place and it's hard to kind of um, identify just one single, simple, like this is what, um, what did it for me. But, you know, as a, as a kid, I was interested in being outside, uh, being in the backyard, chasing grass, grasshoppers, butterflies, crickets, frogs, birds. And, uh, so I always had that, um, interest in at least the backyard ecosystem, and then, of course, the the northern cabin. Uh, I eventually picked up a guitar and started playing in a band, and we weren't very good, but anyway, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I had a, an old Les Paul through a Marshall stack, so it always sounded pretty decent, uh, but I really wasn't very good. But uh, anyway, we had fun. I'm sure you were better than me. Yeah, I can okay. barely play a ukulele. I'm, like, okay. yeah. um, I'm convinced that the yeah. more I just stare at like, a musician or something, I'll one day be able to right. play. But right. anyway. And, yeah, and, and in high school, I took a music history class, and then in college, I took a music theory class. And uh, But I was always driven to kind of go into science. Uh, and uh, I got into, into biology mostly uh, because my, my parents wanted me to become a medical doctor. Um, so I disappointed them in becoming a doctor of ecology uh, instead. But, you know, there there was a moment when I was an undergraduate where um, I thought this is it. We, I, I, had a, I had one of those great professors in college, a little bit quirky, no, a lot quirky, <laughs> you know, just out of the box kind of guy. Uh, he... Um, was really into birds. I couldn't quite understand his f- full fascination with birds until I started seeing uh, birds through his lens, you know. Mm. And um, uh, he was teaching an ecology class too, and and I took that ecology class. It was it was actually a required class of me as as a pre med major. And I I remember uh, going to all these different types of ecosystems. And I thought, wow, the diversity of wetlands is really extraordinary. It's just, I can't believe all the different, you know, bogs and fens and swamps. And, and, uh, one day I was just having a conversation with him in the hall and he said, so, you know, what do you think about these, you know, Saturday morning trips we're taking? I said, I love them. I can't wait for the next one. I, I don't like getting up so early in the morning, but anyway, I love them. He said, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And, you know, it's one of those questions where you just hate to have that answer, right? <laughs> and, oh, well, I'm on the pre-med track. And he says, well, well, why don't you, why don't you do something for me? And, and you know, he said, uh, what was your favorite place? And I said, I love this fen. 
I said, I didn't even know what a fin was. And I said, I just loved it. He said, okay, do you have binoculars? And I said, yeah, actually I do. He said, do you have a car? And I said, yeah. Okay, hold on a second. And he goes in this back room and clanking and things are falling all over the place. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? And he comes out, he gets me a pair of waders, gets me a map. He said, sit down, let me show you how to get there. He says, I want you to go to that fen early in the morning. I want you to go by yourself, go out and walk, get out in the middle of it at, at sunrise. And you just stand there for 15 minutes and you come back and you tell me what you want to do with the rest of your life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it was like, oh, wow. And I did that. And I came back and I said, okay, you got me hooked. This is, this is really cool. What, what do I need to do? Um, so, you know, I ended up playing with graduate school and going through the rigors of that and becoming a faculty member. Um, you know, again, there are multiple pathways here. Um, one of the other pathways was my fascination with just um, technology. And at the time, I I was contemplating whether or not I should take a computer programming language rather than take something like Latin or Greek. And I thought, uh, maybe I should take a programming language. That might be a little bit more useful for me. And so I took a Fortran programming class today did fairly well. And so there the professor told me, you know, you should think about doing this. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm just really, uh, really into ecology. So combine the two, just, you know, find ways to do that. And it was really good advice. And, and I did, I kept pursuing, uh, computers. And before I knew it, um, there weren't that many people back in the late eighties that were fairly good at programming and figuring out new programming languages and, here's a sensor and you know, how do you work with it and how do you program? And it's like, okay, I'll figure it out, you know? <laughs> so, so that love of, you know, nature in general, which goes back to my childhood and then transitioning from pre-med to becoming an ecologist to <clears throat> having this fascination with sensors and gadgets and data and that sort of thing all kind of came together um, maybe about 15 years ago. And that's, you know, it's kind of a long road. I've always had also a fascination for, with um, <clears throat> social science and the, the, the psychological aspects of sound just truly, you know, fascinated me. So it's like putting it all together. So anybody who, I, I found out that just about everybody who's kind of in this space that I'm in, has similar kinds of stories. Um, they find they find that sound is this like universal thing that helps pull together all of these desperate strands in their life, um, and makes it something that um, is kind of purposeful. So that's a beautiful uh, origin story. Uh, in in many ways, I've, I've felt like that when I started when I entered the realm of animal studies. I felt mm -hmm. as though I'd kind of arrived you know that i was home yeah. somehow that yeah um yeah i can kind of make connections between all my different interests and how they got me to focusing on on this which is really just lovely mm -hmm. um so this is the the first episode in in a season of 10 episodes that's going to focus on animals and sound and i thought it would be really good to speak to you so that we could kind of get a, a general sense of why sound is important when thinking mm -hmm. about animals 
And so far in the podcast, we the, the previous seasons have focused on things like animals and the law and how policies kind of manage animals and the ways in which animals can move and where. And I'm sure you'll have something to say about that in terms of sound. The second one focused more on sound, I mean, animals and experience yeah. and kind of how animals experience the world and you know the the, the oh, this word phenomenology of yes, phenomenology. Um, that's right the yeah. the experience of the world and then i think again sound here is really vital to how animals experience the world i mean we are animals and as you i think beautifully charted there in the beginning of this episode is how essential it's been to who we are as individuals and who we are as societies and cultures and people and then the the last one was uh, animals and the urban and of course, in in a lot of your your writing, as well as uh, some of the videos I've seen of you, you you tend to speak about the city as a really important place in terms of thinking yeah. about yeah. sound and ecology. So, I thought it would be great for you to start off this fourth season for us, and kind of just maybe giving a general sense of why should scholars who are interested in some of these questions about animals and putting animals at the forefront of their thought. Why should they be incorporating sound into how they're thinking about these animal worlds and these animal problems? What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Yeah, there, there are lots of answers to that question. Uh... You know, the first is most animals are active at night. The largest number of species uh, just are feeding, doing what they do at night. <clears throat> How do they navigate spaces? Uh, you know, many of them are using the visual, but the, uh, but the sonic uh, space is far more informative for them. So uh, they've developed the acuity to listen and to use those sounds to help navigate, find prey, find mates, uh, figure out where there is danger to communicate with conspecifics. Um, so that's, you know, that's an important aspect of their lives. So, um, ecologists, uh, go to sleep when it gets dark and then we wake up when it gets light. So we're, we haven't paid much attention to, uh, the active period of most animals. So, uh, so as, as a scientist, we need really need to understand, uh, how animals are surviving in this rapidly changing world and how are they using sound to do that? Uh, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, sound is, uh, they're going to be the most important sense for them, maybe outside of the sense of smell to being able to navigate through dense tropical rainforests or even dense temperate forests, you know, getting through, 
you know, seeing something is usually fairly difficult. And, and oftentimes if you see something, you don't see it very long. Um, sound travels uh, a fair distance. And so you can use that as a way to kind of navigate space, find information. You know, just it's just information about place. So sound is, is very, very important. Um, a couple of things about um, the urban environment, and I, and I wanted to speak to that too because I think it's important. One is <clears throat> more than half of humans now exist in cities and in urban spaces. That means we're surrounded by concrete jungles. It's not a natural jungle. It's, it's uh, walls and glass and steel. <clears throat> and we are, uh, we're physically separated from nature. And, you know, psychologically, I don't know what that means, or there are a lot of people that speculate what that means as, as, as a species, as, as we, um, move through life continuously separated from nature, does that mean we become different from it? We shouldn't because we are part of it. And if something is happening in nature, maybe we don't care anymore. So that, that, um, that caring part is the, is, is the aspect that I worry about because we, we are in the middle of a biodiversity crisis on this planet. We are in the middle of a sixth extinction and we need to be able to rally the troops or rally society around this and focus on it as something that uh, is important. It's important to our survival. So, so the first aspect of this is uh, the urban environment uh, has uh, tended to separate us as a species from rest of hum, hum, uh, rest of, of, of nature. Um, the second is <clears throat> the urban environment. We can extend that to just debate about everything mechanical. By that, I mean the combustion engine has pervaded just about every space uh, in air, on land, in, in the water. Uh, the combustion engine produces um, not very informative sounds, so we don't listen to it. We turn our ears off to it. But it's everywhere. And it's so loud in some places, especially in our oceans, mm. that it interferes with communication. And, you know, when whales are trying to find one another, when whales are trying to sing their songs and provide ways in which there's, there's a presence, they, they defined their presence. Um, we have an impact. Uh, our, so our urban space, I'm saying, is, it goes beyond the built environment. It, mm -hmm. goes, it goes into the transportation systems. So as the, <clears throat> as the earth warms, for example, um, our, our reach, our noise impact footprint, if you will, as it now is being extended into the northern poles because we can now ship things more cheaply by going through northern passages. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, places that used to be fairly quiet are now noisy. Um, air traffic continues to go up. The number of cars we have on our planet continues to go up. So, so the other aspect of this is our noisy urban footprint is, is just everywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. it is, I mean, even when I go to places like 
you know, hiking into the mountains in Patagonia to go record the sounds of glaciers, there's something flying overhead or there's something that, you know, it's like, wow, where did that sound come from? Yeah. Um, so, so our presence is everywhere, you know, and, and, uh, in some cases it's like, well, we can't, we can't have, um, half the world in quiet spaces. That's just not practical, but we don't have very many, or for that many, maybe any quiet spaces mm. where we don't have an impact. So our urban footprint is, is impacting, I think, uh, animals, animal communication around the world. And there's lots of there's been lots of great examples by scholars in this field to be able to demonstrate that, you know, birds have to sing louder or they sing at a higher pitch to be able to kind of elevate the sounds above the background sounds. And there's, they're changing uh, the timing of their singing. They're singing more at night when it's quieter. So there's just, um, we're, we're having an impact though. So our urban spaces, you know, do, uh, do impact the animal community. And that's something that we're all trying to study. Mm. Uh, this, this was something that came up in a lot in season three was kind of the, the significance of the idea that somehow yeah. humans are separated from that, that we are nature. Um, you know, in, in some ways I would think of the city as nature, which I know is perhaps maybe slightly different to the way you're framing it here, but, uh, but that's, I certainly agree that what's happening in cities extends far beyond what we would consider to be the borders of cities or the boundaries of cities in, in waterways in, and in sound. Um, you know, I, I was into space podcasts for a little while and I was, I marveled actually at the fact that how far our sound, it just keeps going out and out in space. It's not even just the globe. Our sounds are just continuing throughout space eventually maybe another civilization out there will all of a sudden get this like smack of, of, <laughs> of sound which right. which is really far beyond the city but in terms of animals there what I, what I heard you saying was that sound is significant for for animals lives it's, it's significant in terms of when they communicate uh, and it's significant for how they communicate uh, as well as where where they view themselves in relation to others who are communicating. Um, and I thought it was really significant what you said there about nighttime and kind of some of the the, the gaps in our view as scholars that we, we kind of go to summer destinations or we go out during the day and maybe we fail to take into consideration the animals and how they're communicating and how they're experiencing things at times that we, that would be inconvenient for us. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. yeah uh, no, I, 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 what, what is truly fascinating about uh, a lot of the work that I do and others do is that we couldn't have done this unless um, engineers came up with solutions to making these marvelous sensors. I've got, you know, like one here, for example. Uh, so I, what, I use, what does that what does that do? So so you got you've got two uh, microphones sitting off to the side here. Something mm -hmm. I just I kind of attached to a tree, and then. So, so for those of those you are listening, it's like a it. box. Yeah, it's like a it's box. Like a box. It's, a, yeah. it's called a passive acoustic recorder. Okay. And so, and so I can program it here or I can be on a laptop and program it. And so what it does is it turns on and turns off its specific recording cycles. It's called a mm. duty cycle. And then on the side there are 
SD cards that store okay. my data and I can put two one terabyte wow. uh, drives in there. So it's like, and then, uh, then I have my batteries that I could put in there. So D size. And you know, what's re really remarkable is that uh, there are several companies that produce these <clears throat> that uh, I can put this out and record one minute per hour and it's going to go for over a year. Wow. How do you think about that? So I can record, um, and I have these going all over, all over the world right now in various studies. Um, I can record and then, you know, I have to do sneaker net to, which is me going out and getting the data, but I don't mind that if they're in really cool places in the world. And then I'm doing analyses of the data using a lot of machine learning, artificial intelligence kinds of tools, mm. uh, to probe these files. Um, but, uh, in the early days, many of us that were trying to do this were taking microphones, putting laptops in suitcases, and coming back a day later, finding that the $3,000 worth of equipment that we just put in there just failed, <laughs> just fried. You know? it's like, so ecologists doing you know, engineering work, it's just not pretty. Mm -hmm. uh, but engineers have figured out a way to kind of make, this, make these things robust. You know, I've got these in deserts. I've got these in tropical rainforests, uh, oh. sitting in the middle of, of icy, uh, you know, roof, like mountaintop areas. Uh, they're really robust, and uh, it's it's allowing us to collect a boatload of data. So, as a community, we probably have uh, petabytes and petabytes of what the Earth sounds like in oh. all of these places. I'm and not exactly I'm, sure how big a petabyte. Is, but I'm guessing that's really, really, really big. It's really, really big. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when you think about it, you know, also uh, we have a record of what the landscape, what places look like. They go back to maybe about the 18 what 30s, 1840s. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have very many recordings that go back maybe prior to 1920, right? And very few. Um, but now. But now we've got these little, you know, magic boxes and uh, the magic box records. And there are so many of us all around the world using these. So now we've got another tool in our toolkit, mm -hmm. in our toolbox to go out and study the environment. But, you know, this one here focuses mostly on animals, um, the songs, the calls of everything. So that, that takes us to kind of the, the concept and focus, which is uh, soundscapes. And for, I think, a lot of listeners, the idea of a soundscape is a rather new idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, what, what is it? What is a soundscape? Why, why would, what is different to a soundscape versus me recording my dog Linus when he's chewing mm -hmm. uh, a stick, you know, <clears throat> yeah, like crunch, right. crunch. That's probably one of my favorite sounds. Yeah. Uh, what What's the difference between recording a soundscape versus uh, recording Linus? I see no difference. And uh, it's, so let me, let me kind of back up a little bit and kind of put a uh, kind of focus on uh, the soundscape versus what, many folks have done prior to this, which is bioacoustics work. So the bioacoustics work has been a study of species communication. How do animals 
uh, structure their sound, structure their voices? How does it propagate across space? And then how do they receive it? You know, uh, and, and the reception is, is very complex too. It's, it's, you know, every animal perceives, receives information, sonic information, acoustic information differently than humans. So, so there's just been a lot of studies on species, very species specific. Uh, but you know, my, some of the bioacoustics work moved out of that and started doing like multi-species comparisons, you know, um, it was a, a really, really hot area for a while. It's called acoustic partitioning, how do animals communicate that are, are singing basically in the same kind of acoustic space? How do they partition it so that they don't kind of walk over their signals? And there's been a lot of work that's been done on that. It's very fascinating. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, uh, to me, a soundscape <clears throat> is a collection of all sounds. And in many ways, um, you're kind of agnostic as to what it is you're looking at. You want to you want to study every sound that exists in a recording. That's a soundscape. And also, you're interested in its, its structure, spectral structure. You know, is it high frequency, low, whatever, modulated? Um, but what is its sound source? And then we get down to the sound source. It is the biological, the biophony, the geophysical, the geophony, and then the anthropogenic or the technical, technological uh, anthropophony or technophony. Those sound sources begin to tell you a bit of a story about place. Okay, so if you're getting, if you're listening and you hear... <clears throat> the sounds of certain kinds of birds, but you also hear in the background the sounds of running water, you know you're probably next to a stream. So this is something about that place. You know, I have I have sensors in Tanzania, for example, where I listen to the recordings and I can hear the sounds of the running water. It's very distinct. And I can I can tell you pretty much what date that might be because I have a sense of what the rainy season and the dry season schedule is. That stream is dry a lot of part of the year, and so it's not making sounds. Um, other times of the year, it's kind of moderate trickle. Other times, it's gushing, it's roaring, right? So it tells me something about the climate, mm -hmm. the weather patterns that exist there. <clears throat> and then I can listen to everything else and begin to develop this taxonomy of sounds, sources, the primates the birds, the insects, the amphibians. And that begins to tell me a story about the animals, that all the animals that exist there. Uh, so uh, it's all the sounds. So the, the specific definition of a soundscape is all the sounds at a place over a given time period. So you have to define the time period uh, that come from all sound sources. Wow. And that are perceived by humans or animals and I, I can go either way i can i can say multi-species too by mm -hmm. that I, I mean humans are animals uh, i'm a biologist i would i would say that we are but there are societal norms that say well we're a little bit different but anyway it, it's all the sounds that occur co-occur from all the sound sources over this time period <clears throat> that can be perceived and that are perceived. And when you start to collect all of these different, uh, so you said biophony, geophony, and 
entrophony or technophony. So you're starting to, so I understand that I can start recording anywhere and I'll, mm. I'll in instance, <clears throat> whatever I'm recording mm. at that moment, I'm getting a sense of the scape, how the scape yeah. of the sound there. So right. similar to if I was standing on a street or standing on a mountain and looking at that street or looking over that mountain, I would, based on my vision at that moment, I would get a particular landscape. Here I'm getting mm -hmm. a particular soundscape depending on where I am and mm. when I am, uh, which is great. But when I start to take into consideration these different kinds of parts that you mentioned, do you find that there are different uh, like classifications of these sounds, different compositions of how these sounds are put together in different places? Are you starting to, with all the data, I forgot the big word you used mm. just now. It's Petabyte. bigger than it. Yeah, yeah there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when, um, when you start to put these together, what patterns are you finding in terms of different sounds and how yeah. multi-species, humans and right. animals, how we're producing sounds? Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of like my my uh life mission so you know one of the things that we're trying to do is you know i call it uh record the earth <laughs> what does that mean well <clears throat> it means that i want to study every major biome on the planet uh, with one study that helps me to define what the characteristic soundscape is of that biome so um there are lots of ways to count biomes. You can be a lumper or a splitter, but the one that I use is we have a 32 biome, major biomes in on, on Earth, and we've done 27, so I've got about five more to go. Um, every biome does sound very distinctly because every biome has a certain assortment of animals. And what I also found fa find fascinating is that Every biome has a structure, and we've known this for a while, a body size relationships of animals. So um, large body size animals are very common in places like grasslands and savannas. The sounds there tend to be fairly low frequency, dominated by those large-bodied animals. Uh, you get to the tropics, you don't have a lot of large-bodied animals except for maybe a, you know a few uh, holler monkeys that go to the top of the trees. But anyway, you've got a lot of small birds because they have to navigate through small spaces. It's just, you know, um, so the, there are high frequencies there. Um, but it, it goes beyond just like frequency distributions too. Um, we've known for a while, for example, that the sounds that birds make in forests tend to be more whistles because they propagate better through that kind of environment, uh, forest environments. Yeah, so you know, one of one of the things I I say to the public, we're we're talking about uh, uh, the different kinds of sound patterns that exist in different places. Uh, what I've discovered is I've gone gone around the world in just about every place that I think is kind of a healthy environment. I can tap my foot to it. I can tap my foot to the soundscape, and here's why: there are uh, a collection of rhythmic animals, and these tend to be our crickets, our anurans, our frogs, that um, basically serve as the base of the food chain, right? So the rest of the vertebrate community, the animals such as um, our mammals and birds uh, will feed on this. It's a food resource. Uh, if I can tap my foot 
and listen to the crickets or to the frogs. That means they're there. Uh, when they're not, uh, I have to ask the question, well, should they be? <laughs> and if they should be, it's like, well, this might not be a good thing. So, you know, there are things that I, I do listen to and I can tell you are, are just like patterns of different, uh, different ecosystems. There are very distinct patterns to, in some areas when you, you start getting up into higher mountain elevations, uh, you hear very, very few animals and it tends to be very quiet. And, uh, that's probably, I think a natural, uh, phenomenon, but, um, as you move from those quiet mountain areas down into the tropics, you can certainly hear many more voices, many more sounds of animals. Uh, the chorusing is, is just unbelievable. That's uh, a word so. I've, I've heard you use a lot, chorusing. Is, is that yeah. because, uh, I think I know what a chorus is in a song. Mm, um, right. I mean, I've listened to the Backstreet Boys and any... Yeah, sure. So, um, <laughs> but... What what do you mean when you're saying a chorus in terms of a, an environment or an ecosystem? Is is this the foot tapping that you're talking about? Well, no, it goes beyond that. It's it's uh, it's the collection of all the animal sounds uh, together, you know. And it's how are they spaced out spectrally? By that I mean higher frequencies, medium frequencies, and low frequencies. How are they? And then. Um, there's lots of evidence to suggest that uh, animals will space out their songs. And in some cases, they take their cues from a leader. <laughs> there's a conductor. So, you know, this has been uh, true in some of the research in birds where, you know, one species might serve as I'm going to sing and then I'm going to stop for a while and then and then others kind of come in. So there's there seems to be some kind of structure that's evolved so that um, everybody can do their thing because we all can't communicate in the same space. It's going to get too crowded. It's not going to serve its purpose, right? We got to find our acoustic space. And so, um, that's what I mean by chorusing. Now there are spe specific times of the day where there's a peak and on the terrestrial on the land, uh, it's the dawn and it's really, I mean, we all know it. We all listen to it. It is, the sounds of, of birds, uh, frogs, and insects. And it tends to be the overlap of the nighttime animals animals, and the daytime animals. And so what you've got there is this kind of the peak and the abundance of animals that want to do their communication. Um, several theories as to why that is. It's probably the quietest time of the day for both um, animal communities to kind of participate in some kind of communication to say, I'm here, this is my space, or, or we have so many conspecifics in the area to kind of figure out what our densities are. But um, what I find fascinating is that when you begin to do a comparison of ecosystems, which is, you know, what we've also been talking about, the peak chorusing in the, in the oceans is at night. It's a dusk. And so you have fish, you have, you have sea urchins, you have snapping shrimp, and they're all coursing at night. And it's like, why is that? That's one of those things where I'm just kind of going, why? <laughs> you know? That's fascinating. 
I mean, because I, I think about chorus is really a beautiful word. You spoke earlier about childhood memories. And for me, there is something, there's almost like a, a hug when I think back to waking up in the early morning and you've kind of got those, it's, and, and so I, I grew up in Johannesburg mm. and we had, you know, lots of, lots of insects were a very insect uh, oriented place, I think. And, and just the, the air would often be thick or humid, you know, right. it's a dry, it's a fairly dry place, but in the mornings it had like this thickness and you could hear the insects and, mm-hmm. but dusk was always my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. You would hear the frogs come out and the crickets mm-hmm. and it yeah. really is just part of, it's part of my day in terms of how I know when I'm going to start and when I'm going to end. But right. then the idea that the ocean where most of the planet is, is singing at night. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the, the other, the other part of the story is um, just by listening and thinking about ecosystems, every ecosystem has its own, own long term stretched out rhythm. By that, I mean, the winter sounds different than the spring which sounds different than the summer, which also sounds different than the fall. So those of us that are in regions of the world where we have four seasons, every season has a distinct sonic signature. Mm. So, you know, we're listening here in the mid latitudes and the Northern mid latitudes right now, I'm hearing katydids that are singing just at dusk, you know, Katie did, Katie didn't. Katie did. Katie, Katie didn't. didn't. You know, it's like, okay, um, I guess it's fall. You know, it's, it's, and it's not, you know, it's not early. You know, it's just like the middle of fall, you know, and uh, the cicadas have just stopped. They're, they're done. But that's telling me it's late, hot summer. Yeah, I, I had never heard a cicada until I moved to South Korea. I was lucky to live mm-hmm. in South Korea for a little while. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that mm-hmm. me, me, yeah, me. Right. And that right. to me is now a distinctive hot, humid yeah. summer's day sound from South Korea. It's, it's a right. sound I right. never encountered uh, or right. at least wasn't conscious of in South Africa. Well, I tell you uh, – we have dog day cicadas here, which is just, you know, a regular annual cicada. Um, I was stunned when I got to Borneo and found that there were 32 species of cicada. You sent me a cicada um, sound, I think. I did. I Let did. Let me see. I think I've got two sound clips here from Borneo. I think this is the correct one to me. Should be the second one. Yeah. So we were just talking about waking up to a dawn chorus. Imagine five thirty in the morning. This is what it sounds like outside my cabin. Sounds like an alarm clock. It's yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like, doesn't it? Um, and these are cicadas. Yeah, and wow. here's 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 what I find fascinating by it, uh, by by this particular cicada that we're listening to now. When I got to Brunei and I gave a talk uh, at the university there, and uh, there were some graduate students, and I uh, gave a talk about soundscapes. And what I'm about to do, I'm going to go out to the, your forest here, and I'm going to spend three months and, and, and study it. And I've got all these, these um, experimental designs. I had a graduate student. She, she raised her hand. She says, Dr. Dr. Pijanowski, are you going to study the six o'clock cicada? And I said, Oh, that's 
that's an interesting name for it. I said, well, tell me more about that. She says, we have a cicada that sings at six o'clock in the morning and in the evening. And I thought, that's fascinating. I said, I'm going to have to do that. Wow. So, uh, you know, there, since there are 32 cicada, 32 species of cicada, it's like, how do they find the space to sing? They sing at a certain time and they take it all up. You know, they're just going to, this, this is, so, um, I, I get to, I get to, uh, the research station it takes me about, about an hour and a half to two hours going up the river, just completely remote. I mean, I'm in no place. This is wonderful. And after three months there, I came back, I gave a talk to the same graduate class and I said, who is it that, ans- that asked me this question? She said, I, I said, okay, you have five species of six o'clock cicada. Wow. And it was just like, wow. I said, yeah, this is the way in which they structure their sounds. So when we're and listening they, to that clip, is that one yeah. cicada or we're hearing There's probably several? about three or four in that, wow. that recording. Can I and play so, it again? Yeah, go ahead <laughs> if you want. Is that rhythm? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So you know, so some some uh, some animals have what I call very specific soundscape triggers. By that I mean there's something in the environment that triggers them to start singing or calling. In this particular case, although I didn't have a light sensor with me, it just started making sense to me that they were triggered by a certain amount of solar radiation. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's starting to get dark. It's about this amount of solar radiation. I'm starting to sing. And then another one would come in just a little bit after that. And so it was very, very kind of structured in, in, in that, that sense. And it's like, wow, this is very, very interesting because mm-hmm. if, if there are 32 species of you, you got to figure out ways to kind of do things that are different. But as you listen to it too, uh, they've structured their sounds to be very, very unique too, you know? So, um, and then, and then they're just fascinating, uh, just to look at them as, as I was walking through, uh, the forest on, on my first day, I was there with my colleague and, uh, this thing flew in front of me and I thought it was a bird <laughs> and it landed on a tree. And I looked over, it's like, my God, that's a huge cicada. It's about the size of my hand. And I thought, wow. And then it started singing. I thought, I got to get out of here. It's so loud. It was like, and they leave their exoskeletons just. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just... know. It's like, there they were. Yeah. At one point in time. It's yeah. So it's, it's a fascinating system, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the point here is, is that you know animals have a rhythm? Mm. Uh, the rhythms are kind of complex. You go to a place. There's a signature that exists for every ecosystem. And as an ecologist that's studying these ecosystems, I want to know what is that spectral signature? You know, what is it like? And 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 also how and I know you've written a bit about how we should conserve these and archive these and yeah. respect yeah. them. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, I've got another one here from Borneo. I don't know if you should be playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Let's yeah. See what this one's about. Oh. It's the dawn chorus.
woodpecker. Yeah. Those howler monkeys. Birds. And that. What's that? What's that bird? Uh, a bird, and then uh, a f tropical frog in the lower. So, so here's another thing. If 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 I were to have a bunch of experts in a room, the best experts in the in the world that are studying all the species at this at this site, none of us could come up with a full catalog of all the sounds that we listen to and have a hundred percent confidence that every sound we listen to is what we think it is. Oh. Now, there are a lot of people that tell me, well, well, that's no good because if you don't do that, then you can't get anything like that species catalog that you're after. And I say, I'm not after a species catalog. I'm after the signature. I'm after what is the essence of this place? And what should it sound like? Now, what I have are sonic structures that represent sound sources from a variety of animals. And I'll tell you, I will be completely happy, pleased, thrilled, actually, if I can develop this sound source taxonomy that tells me something about who is there. But in a general sense, that's all I need to know. Because if I go to someplace else and I don't hear that sound s signal mm -hmm. or a host of them, then I can then I can start asking the question, well, what's missing? Yeah, it was, and it was... why is it missing? Right. So so it's like it's like in some cases, it's like going to a symphony and listening to, you know, uh, a, a Beethoven symphony, for example, and thinking that you're going to listen to every single instrument, know what note is playing, but also what instrument it is. Sometimes you just, you want to take the whole thing in mm -hmm. and know what it's all structured at. Uh, it, so, so it's like, it's like coming up with a quantification of the soundscape and that is good enough. And what I tell my ecology uh, colleagues is that we don't necessarily have to come up with a species catalog to know what species richness or diversity is, biodiversity is. The functional aspects of the ecosystem, which is its sonic signatures, are just as important because sound is a means for how the ecosystem is functioning. Animal communication is part of the, the network that keeps things going. So if we have a full network, a full complement of sounds, of animal sounds, or if we can go to places that are reference baseline and say, this is what it probably should sound like, and then compare that and say, all right, now we have a reference. Now we can go someplace else and say, okay, what's missing? Mm. That is that is the useful approach that we're trying to apply here. Let's so say you, if, we were, if we were starting from like my kind of perspective where I've got a, an interest in a specific species or a specific animal. And I know you had mentioned bioacoustics kind of deals with the communication aspects, but perhaps if I'm interested in a, a specific uh, animal or species or set of multi-species relationships, I, I think that this could be really useful as well in that it, 
I could go, I could consider the soundscapes of different places where the species are found and start to think a little bit about how their mm-hmm. health correlates uh, or, or what the soundscape health could tell me about right. that population health uh, right. because I'm, I'm sure there must be connections there, right? This is what Absolutely. you're saying. That, That's what that I'm if, saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So, I mean, the way I approach every study is I try to find a reference place. It takes me a long time. Uh, I have to build relationships with people that are uh, are a key colleagues, and um, but I also have to look at the ecosystem and, and ask the question: What are the major threats to it? Mm-hmm. And then, how do I structure my studies to be able to study them? that kind of phenomenon. So I'll give you an example. You know, I'm uh, working in in Mongolia at the moment, and I'm interested in um, the potential impacts that livestock grazing has on grasslands. Mongolia represents the largest intact grassland we have on the planet. Um, They're beautiful grasslands. Actually, if you get out to the eastern steppes, it's just, you know, eye-watering beauty. I cycled to it up through Mongolia. I cycled okay. I cycled from Ulaanbaatar up to All right. beautiful place. I yeah, absolute I can at least Probably share this door, with you. Doornod. Maybe oh. doornod. Did you get up to Doornod? It's just uh it's, yeah. It's but anyway, yeah it is. Uh uh so uh started a study, uh went to a a place where there's the Taki horse, which is uh, an endangered horse. And I knew that the landscape would be managed in a way where it's pretty much pristine, no grazing. And so then I went to areas where work with herders to say, okay, where, where do you think there's been the most uh, grazing, the least moderate and put sensors out and, you know, we're, we're, we're analyzing the data now, but the idea here <clears throat> is to look at, what are the major stressors on that ecosystem and how can we use the soundscape to be able to detect whether or not our activities have any impact on that ecosystem. And I, I, you know, I could go on for maybe about 50 studies or or so where we're doing pretty much the same thing. We're looking at marine protected areas, areas that in, in the marine system, like kelp forests where, um, you can't you can't fish you can't do other things there that potentially might harm the ecosystem and then look outside uh that marine protected area and compare and contrast those so does the soundscape sound like in the protected area versus outside um so those are the kinds of studies that we're doing to kind of get a sense of how can we use soundscapes to understand uh, reference condition baseline and then compare that against our human activities of for whatever kind that might exist. That's fascinating. Um, and to circle back to our conversation about cities <clears throat> earlier, and also <clears throat> anthropony, do you yeah. find do you find that different cities sound different to one another, or is this is this a similar is this a similar you know how you said, depending on the size of animals and depending on kind of the time of year, you can, there's signatures to different soundscapes. Mm-hmm. Are all cities kind of sounding the same? Or do you find that there might be some distinctiveness between cities across the world? There is. Yeah. I, I was called up by a group, and I won't say what group it was. You can probably guess what group it was, and it's not something I can't talk about. But <clears throat> Dr. Pijanowski 
if I were to play recording from you from a cell phone and we don't know its position, could you tell us where it might have come from? And uh, my answer was at the time, well, probably, uh, maybe guesswork. But what I did is I started sitting down and putting together a rubric for listening. And I thought to myself, I think I can get very, very close. Why? Well, every city sounds a little different. <clears throat> so uh, the sirens that exist in cities uh, have, have been tuned to different kinds of frequencies, depending upon where you're at. So, the, you know, there are regulations in, say, Europe and the United States and uh, where the sirens sound different. So you, you can listen to that. You can listen to police sirens and other kinds of sirens. Um, you could also listen to things like um, you know, what I call the acoustic religious symbols, uh, you know, church bells, uh, Muslim chants in the evening. That tells you something about place, maybe geography. Um, you can listen to the sounds of you know, the sounds of animals, especially birds, are are very distinct and then very geographically defined. All right. Um, and then, so before I knew it, it's like, well, I can probably get maybe down to continent and then I got the seasonal thing that I'm listening to. So I can tell you something a little bit about crickets and because those emerge during certain kinds of seasons. So before I know it, I've maybe got a little bit more to my latitude and then I got time of day. Okay. That tells me something about longitude. So before you know it, and then if you start thinking about how sound reflects off a of brick and glass and, you know, what kind of structures there are, uh, you could probably get to, well, what kind of buildings are around there? So before you know it, you probably have a rubric that you could figure out how, how you could identify a place through all the complexities of sound. That's a, that's an incredible answer. And your, your comprehension of sound is just like to think that sound reverberates differently off different surfaces, that animals produce sound differently depending on where they are, what time of the year it is. Uh, these are all nuances, I think, that I hadn't ever ascribed to to sound. Um, we're going to start wrapping up now, okay. um, but just a, a couple of uh, final questions. One, um, what is your favorite animal sound? Um, let me, uh, gibbons. Let me tell you about gibbons. Uh when I was in Borneo, I climbed a tower and I did this uh, a couple of times in the morning, which was really characteristic of what people were doing in this tower in the national park. And you, you would leave early in the morning before sunrise, of course, take some time to get up there and I'd haul up all my audio recording equipment. Uh, but when you got, got all the way to the top of the tower, uh, we were on this like ridge. So you're very, very high up. And so we were 90 meters above the ground, but probably about 30 meters above the top of the canopy. So we just had this really distinct like perch. <laughs> and, um, I just remember the, the gibbons, the way in which their families bark across the river banks. It was, it, it was just unreal. I mean, I, I just, um, it was, a, it's a social, um, social acoustic communication, uh, but the way in which it kind of echoed across the river Canyon is just unforgettable to me. So, you know, that's, that's one that I find to be, you know, almost kind of like a spiritual, you know, because you're connecting 
in a way where you just kind of go, ah, very few people have ever had this experience, right? Aren't gibbons one of the loudest animals? That, yeah, like, yeah, that like, they're like, very loud, whoop, yeah. Whoop, yeah, whoop, 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 I don't know if you, were one of the sound clips <clears throat> you sent me a, a gibbon? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe, uh, no. Co- oh, yes. Uh, holler monkey in Costa Rica. Should we hear it? Yeah. I think it's sure. quite a sound. But it's, <laughs> are you ready? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, hold on to your seats. Yeah. Oh, there we go. You know what? I thought it clipped the beginning of that. You know, here's the fun, you know, so holler monkeys, you go to Costa Rica, uh, I encourage people to go to Costa Rica if there's any place that is fun and just full of nature and full of sounds, it's a great place. Um, but holler monkeys are, are one of my favorite things to listen to in, in Costa Rica because I think they're kind of funny. Uh, they, you know, they sit up on top of the, of the trees and not sure what they do most of the day other than just pretty much sleep. Uh, but when the rains come, they howl. When the mm-hmm. thunder hits, they howl. It's like, you've just woke me up, you know, and say, I want to make a, they want to scream back to the sky that they're just not so pleased about that. You know, so I have to laugh every time. I but love I, how I, you can hear them responding to yeah, the thunder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, when I was, uh, we, we made an IMAX movie a couple of years ago and I was filming in Costa Rica and I, and it was funny. I, I told the film crew, I said, so when the holler monkeys start howling, it's time to kind of pack up. And they looked at me and said, why? And I said, because they're the one they're, they're sitting on top of the forest. They're the first ones to hit, they have the rain hit. And I said, it's going to take about a minute for the, for the rain to eventually drip down to us. Wow. And we sometimes don't know it's raining. We, it's 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 just kind of windy up there, so we just can't can't he- distinguish wow. the wind in a set. So I said, the holler monkeys start howling. It's time to pack up this very expensive IMAX equipment, <laughs> and they laughed. And and after you know a couple times it happened, they said, "Wow, you're right." You know, I said, "Well, <laughs> you got to listen, <laughs> you figure out what's happening, tie it all together." You know, so much of what you've said, I think, today <clears throat> with regards to sound and animals has kind of taught me about. Again, the sensory experiences of animals, whether it's the mm-hmm. cicadas, you know, responding to heat and sun or, right. or um, you know, these howler monkeys responding to rain and how we communicate through these variety of senses that go so far beyond just the, the visual, um, which is amazing. Uh, do you have a, a quote ready for, for the I, I do. Part? I do. It's a quote that I put on top of every syllabus that I teach because it's just one of my, my it's my favorite quote. So every student gets to see it. I probably should talk more about what it means to me, but I get to do that with you. So here's the quote. It's kind of a short one. Those who dwell as scientists or laymen among the beauties and mysteries of the earth are never alone or weary, weary of life. That's beautiful. Yeah. By my, my... by, by my famous uh, favorite writer, Rachel Carson. <clears throat> and uh, it, you know, it just speaks to uh, the fact that as a scientist, 
um, we can find beauty in the things that we study and that, and that, um, if we study it really in depth, we're always in awe. It inspires curiosity. Um, but nature, you know, if, if you have an appreciation for it, you're never alone because, because you are one with nature when you go and be the only person there, mm. but you may be the only person, but you're never alone. So it, it's just a, a wonderful quote. Uh, it's one that I've always felt to be true when I go out and do my deep listening exercises. I'm trying to tune my ears to a place be, early on when I go and listen to the ecosystem because I want to start asking the really deep, relevant questions. So this 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 quote here really reflects uh, some of the the passions I have about studying the earth through the lens of sound and and a stillness. So I find it so interesting because when we think about sound, I think we think of loudness somehow. But I think what you've spoken <clears throat> to here is that to hear sound is to also be still with with it and to listen. And I'm not too sure what deep listening uh, is. What, what what does that mean? Um, so what I've, I've tried to do is I, I've, I've developed these exercises where I just go out and I listen and it's, it's, it's a kind of taking it all in. I'm, I'm trying to remove my bias of the previous place that I was in and listening and just trying to understand it in all of its structure, the temporal spectral structure. And, um, what I've always tried to do as part of this is, is to write um, about what I hear and then eventually distill it down into one word. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the deep listening exercise. It's, it's like, what's the essence of this place? Uh, so, for example, Borneo, the one word that I've, I've kind of come up with is evolution. When I listen to the soundscapes of Borneo, I hear evolution in so many different ways, mm. right? Um, when I go and listen to the sounds of glaciers, to me, it's it's just water, which is like the essence of life in itself. Uh, so um, I'm trying to I'm trying to because as a scientist, I I want to look at this, and sometimes I'm getting far too complex. Uh, but I also want to kind of come up with the higher order essence of a place mm. and describe it. So you kind of, ha- I, you have to do that just by listening and deep listening by just kind of going to a place and you, you have to, you have to do this by yourself and you, you just take nothing but a p- piece of piece of paper or a notebook and uh, a pencil and, and take, take notes, but listen for a long period of time. I also think that you, you he- start to hear more. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you really want to immerse yourself into something, it's really like deep thinking. It's just trying to, trying it's to understand in. it's tuning in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Deep tuning in. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just finding that, that one way of just kind of saying, this is what this place is. Uh, and I think this is so important space. for, for animal study scholars <clears> too, because <throat> animal ethnography is coming up now as a really important tool for trying to understand animals and animal worlds mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's it's complementary to to animal ethology, but not quite not quite the same or with the same lens. And I, I like this idea of even if I was trying to understand a specific animal or a specific group of animals, it could be a multi-species community, to actually sit among them and listen to how they communicate. Listen to if whether it's you know vine sanctuary in Vermont or 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 a jungle to say, well, how are these how are these different beings, including myself? Mm-hmm not just watching one another, but listening to one another, sounding to one another. Yeah. I think I think what you've helped me with today is just kind of opening up my my own vision to some extent to how I should be thinking about animals uh and 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 appreciating that the way I listen might not be the same as the way they listen oh, and the way definitely. I talk might not be the same as the way they talk, but that all of these sounds do come together in a particular way. And that says something that says a story mm-hmm. about our relationships. That says a story about our environments, which is really profound, I think. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. Of course. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We, uh, yes. we had, we had quite a long one. Um, but it was, <laughs> it's okay. it was endlessly uh, interesting. Uh, if folks are interested in your work or want to find out more about what you're doing, uh, how could they get in touch with you or find out those details? Oh, they can send me email, uh, that, 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 that works or visit my website and, uh, that you can find out more about what we do there. Uh, yeah. Do you you Uh, still have the app where everyone can record? uh, You know, um, uh, the, 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 the Google app, uh, I don't want to call them police, but uh, the technology folks have, uh, kind of turned it off. We have to go and apply for another. Oh, okay. uh, application for privacy for that to work. So, uh, yeah, the watch record the, the earth, <laughs> watch the space, record the earth, uh, org is a place where we, uh, ask people to go out, record their own soundscapes. Tell me how it affects you. Does it make you happy? Does it make you curious? Um, and then upload that to our website. And we, we want that on, on earth day every year, April oh, 22nd. Wow. And the idea here is we're kind of capturing the sounds of the planet, but also how do people feel about the sounds that they're surrounded by. So next time I hear Linus chewing that stick, I'll record it because it is one of my favorite sounds. All right. right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here today and for uh, being so patient with my questions and explaining everything. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. It was a, a, a lot of fun, Claudia. So... Good luck on the rest of the rest of the podcast for the series. Okay, welcome back to the Animal Highlights, everyone. As you know, I started these highlights in season three, and it was kind of a bit of a, an experiment, actually, to see what they would sound like, because I really wanted to start to bring animals a bit more into focus. This season's Animal Highlights are going to be done by a good friend of mine and a graduate student in the SAP lab, and that's Hannah Hunter. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Hannah and I have had loads of conversations about animals and about sound and about all sorts of things. And Hannah's actually doing her PhD related to sound and animals. Could you perhaps maybe just give us a snippet of what you're doing and what your interests in sound are? 
Sure. Um, so I am broadly interested in historical bird sound recordings. Um, so some of the earliest ones from around the period of 1910 to 1950. And I'm especially interested in recordings of birds that uh, are now critically endangered or extinct so that we can't listen to in the wild. So we kind of have to go to these historical sources to um, listen to them. And I'm interested in how that changes our relationship with those animals, um, how it's different to represent animals through sound than it is to represent them through photos or taxidermy. Fascinating. And I know you're going to join me in the grad review, so we're going to hear more about your research then. Uh, but for now, you are going to take charge of the animal highlights this season. Uh, so it's kind of a weird thing. It's the first time I'm handing over uh, the baton to someone else and the microphone and the show. So this is like a big moment for the animal turn. Um, but I think that in your capable hands, we're going to learn a lot about uh, animals in these highlights. So uh, which animal are we focusing on in this episode? Going to be focusing on the common nightingale. I think first listening to what a nightingale sounds like. So one of the things that you and Brian talked about in your interview is about how animals change their sounds in response to urban noise. Um, and I wanted to elaborate on that a bit with the example of nightingales and urban birds in general. So I, a long time ago, I saw this article in the New Scientist, which was published in 2004, but I must have seen it more recently, which proclaimed that urban nightingale songs are illegally loud. Um, and so this came from research by a fellow called Henrik Broom. Um, who found that the songs of nightingales in Berlin can be as loud as 95 decibels. So that's about as loud as if you stood next to a chainsaw one meter away. Um, that would be Whoa. a similar <laughs> similar uh, uh, volume. Um, and when they say it's illegally loud, um, this is because it's about eight decibels higher than European law would permit workers to be exposed to without ear protection. So pretty loud <laughs> and you don't expect birdsong to be to get to those levels um but the explanation for this is that as cities have got, gotten louder and louder urban nightingales have had to change both the frequency and volume of their calls um, in order to survive especially their alarm calls so this is known as the lombard or the cocktail effect where birds in cities have had to adjust their songs to be heard much like a person would need to at a crowded party. So if you and I were <laughs> at a party <laughs> back in the old times <laughs> and it was getting louder and louder, we would also have to get louder or maybe uh, uh, subconsciously speak in a different frequency in order to hear each other. So in terms of urban spaces, the soundscapes of cities are often made up of quite low frequency sounds. So if you think about like the hum of a car engine, um, it's quite low. And so urban birds will sing not only louder, but also at higher frequencies um, and also at different times of day when the noise is reduced. So they might not sing during rush hour, but they will sing in the early morning. And so you might have heard of the ecological niche hypothesis um, and there's something similar which is the acoustic niche hypothesis which kind of posits that there are there is a limited amount of acoustic space 
um, and different animals have to find and exploit different acoustic spaces. And so that's what the nightingales are doing. I think this is quite a cool case in a way because it reminds us that animals aren't just passive victims of humans' actions, um, but they're also very resilient and adaptive. So the nightingales are able to reconfigure their behavior to survive in the changing acoustic landscape. But unfortunately, not all species are able to alter their songs because humans are taking up so much of that limited acoustic space. And as I'll discuss in a bit, uh, song altering is not necessarily good for birds. As well, noise can be a major stressor to birds. Researchers at the Max Planck Institute of Ornithology found that zebra finches, for example, exposed to noise can experience rapid aging and shorter lifespans, um, which is what we would probably expect from noise pollution. But the extent to which uh, nightingales and other birds have altered their calls in response to urban noise, of course, was made clear during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. So you'll remember during lockdowns, everyone suddenly noticed the birds again <laughs> because there was a decrease in urban noise in planes and transport and everything like that. And so a study from San Francisco found that the reduction in traffic noise led to a quite dramatic shift in song frequency in white-crowned sparrows. They found that in the absence of noise, sparrows switched to a lower amplitude, more complex songs that had an increased communication distance. So because of this, the researchers suggested that sustained periods of urban quiet would be beneficial to the sparrow population in terms of demographic demographic recovery and species diversity. So they were able to communicate in ways that were more efficient um, and also more successful in terms of attracting a mate um, or communicating with each other. Um, and that obviously happened quite quickly. Um, so it shows the extent to which birdsong is, is adaptive and responsive to uh, the soundscape around it. All this to say that the urban soundscape has a significant impact on bird communication, which of course is key to their life worlds and survival. Though it is amazing to see how they're able to alter their songs in response to changes in the landscape, uh, these noises and noise response changes may often be detrimental to the species. That's my tale about urban birds and noise <laughs> that I wanted well, to share with you all today. <laughs> That's that's fascinating, and um, you know, nightingales. I was I was just having a look now that nightingales they have one of the biggest like repertoires of, of apparently bird sounds. I'm saying that they make they can make over a thousand different sounds, which is just yeah. incredible. Um, you know, when you start to actually pay attention to these sounds, and you kind of get a sense of how varied and diverse they are. So I guess it's not surprising that a bird like like a nightingale is able to respond that way, and just that sound you were saying the, the the intensity of that sound I had no idea that a bird could produce sound um what did you say there like it's equivalent to being how far from to being one meter away from a chainsaw yeah whoa so I never thought I'd hear the word chainsaw nightingale in the same like the same <laughs> right <laughs> but it's also I mean when I first read that article that said they were illegally loud I was thinking you know and they go over kind of the the noise codes and mm -hmm. I think you know if you think about some of the things you talked about in the animals in the urban season about how animals can be kind of spatially transgressive in this way we can kind of think of them as also being sonically transgressive in, yeah. in some ways um but yeah I don't think they face too much persecution over nightingales have Luckily, uh, what we consider as being nice 
songs. Okay. <laughs> so them being loud isn't as much of a problem, but that's less the case with seagulls and, and other sounds that we might not think are as nice. Um, that's fascinating. Yep. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for bringing uh, nightingales into focus for us a little bit uh, and for some of those uh, cool facts and bits of information for us to think yeah. about when, when hearing birds in the city. Thank you so much to Brian Pajanowski for being a fantastic guest, to Hannah Hunter for teaching us more about nightingales. Uh, as always, a thank you to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. And thank you to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast and to Sonic Arts Studio and Sonic Arts of Place Laboratory for sponsoring this season too. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hotzenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!